Use my name. The street. Talk, motherfucker. My name is my name. This is My Name Is My Name, an anomalous humanities podcast with APS. Today I sit down with Sina Kramer, Assistant Professor of Women's Studies at Loyola Marymount University. been a long long time since we have had a podcast and i can only say to those of you who have missed it i am very sorry in my defense i've been spending the last few months finishing a book i've been working on for about four years now uh it's uh, an introduction a general introduction to francois laruel of course um, I'm very happy to have finally finished editing it and getting it sent off for uh, readers. We'll see if they like it, if they'll allow it to be published. But doing that in the midst of teaching and dealing with some you know, normal 1,000 paper cuts of adult life stuff, I just haven't had the time to sit down and do the editing that it takes to get this stuff done. Lots been going on though, uh, both in my life, I'm sure in your life, and just in the world in general. Back in May, uh, Alex Dublay and Daniel Coluciello Barber and I um, did a public workshop on a project we've been working on. Um, we're trying to raise some funds to help support more of those workshops as we're, we're trying to create a, a book on secularism. I'll put the link on the website. If you can throw five bucks our way, it'll help us to travel in order to do these workshops. Um, I know we live in an age of email and, and we should be able to send documents to one another, but I think people who have done intellectual labor uh, know that there is something different about sitting down, uh, working stuff out in proximity, physical proximity to one another. Um, even on the podcast, I, I feel like the conversations that I have over the phone or over Skype, they're good, um, but you don't have the same sort of uh, feel and you sometimes don't have the same sort of conversations um, that you do when you're sitting in the same room together. And it's also strange with this work how even a discussion over you know pizza and beer uh, can be really helpful in terms of clarifying an idea or helping you to see a problem with uh, your work that you hadn't seen when you're you're in that pure academic mode. So this is just to support us um, since we don't have monetary support from institutions. Um, 
And if you can do that, that's great. And if not, uh, that's also okay. I've also had a pretty big um, event happen that maybe some of you would be interested in since I talked about deracination here before, that kind of feeling of homelessness that um, some of us have in relationship to our family. Uh, so my uh, father got in touch with me. Um, I don't I don't know what to say about that uh, in a way. It was kind of great <laughs> to, to hear from him. We haven't talked a ton, and I think that's partly my fault. I really don't like the telephone. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, you know, generational difference means that he prefers speaking on the telephone and um, I've been so busy with uh, teaching this summer and projects that I, I haven't um, been been great at that but it's it's nice to hear from him I don't know if that contradicts the things I said last time um, you probably do have to queer you know the, the normal heterosexual family and um, there's nothing really that mainstream about my family life uh, going all the way back um, it's a it's a mess of America uh, it's it's never been a target ad if I can put it that way um, but it's still nice to hear from him it's funny um, funny that I, I i guess i kind of feel uh embarrassed that i'm happy to hear from him i don't know what that means i don't know you guys are my therapist I'll, I'll move on but i just wanted to keep you guys updated for those who uh had asked me about this anyway um today on the show it's a conversation i had with cena kramer um she had come out to uh philadelphia um, in order to give a talk at a, a nearby school, actually in New Jersey. Um, and we got to sit down and, and talk a little bit about her work, which um, focuses on uh, intersections, uh, again, of philosophy um, and questions of critical theory um, around gender, around race. Um, she's uh, yet another philosopher I know from DePaul University's program. And I think that she takes the... Um, deep study of the history of philosophy that that program emphasizes and connects it to questions that uh, matter today, so uh, questions of exclusion and, and so on. Um, but she talks about that work, so without further ado, uh, let's turn to my conversation with Sina Kramer. There we go. Uh, it was weird being at, a, at SPEP because yeah. I realized that I... Had you never been to SPEP before? No. No, I mean, I'm not, like, in the philosophy world for yeah. real. Like, I I went to um, a theology and religious studies program because I wanted to do continental philosophy of religion at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a guy named Philip Goodchild who was at Nottingham. Mm -hmm. um, but that's pretty removed from normal continental philosophy, I guess. Uh, even, I mean, the only people that aren't removed from that are, like, Merrill Westfall, and I don't think too many people want to hang out with him. Um, I don't want to hang out with him. Uh, it was so it was so trippy walking into like the the mail room at the Fordham Philosophy Department and being like, uh, whoa. <laughs> 
I recognize that name from college. <laughs> oh yeah, because you were at you were at Fordham for. No, I was a I was at Earlham as an undergrad, but I read a lot of Kant. Okay. So, I was like, oh man. Okay, so yeah, let's start. Let's start there. Let's just do background. So, mm-hmm. um, you did philosophy as an undergrad. Yeah, I went to um, Earlham College, a little Quaker college in um, Eastern Indiana, um, which happened to have a really remarkable continental philosophy program really strong in the history of philosophy yeah and your parents were cool you majoring in philosophy or well i went to college to study theater okay so uh philosophy was probably the better choice (laughs) yeah how how did how did uh how did that happen um i took a philosophy class as a as a um a high school student um i mean i grew up in bloomington indiana so and I was like a, a nerd, so I could take classes at, at uh, Indiana University pretty easily. So I took a, a philosophy class there and took a philosophy class. Uh, then my first year at Earlham, I snuck into like an upper division class. I didn't know that it was upper division, and they didn't know that I was a first year. So. Oh. Yeah. I did something similar. I did a 400 level in my second semester, which was Yeah. I was in a, um, a seminar on the first critique, like you know top to bottom first critique wow. my second semester my first year and and so Kant made you fall in love with philosophy yeah or? isn't that sick yeah that's, that's so, a, so that sick there might and be wrong. something wrong there, yeah <laughs> um okay. yeah it was the systematic philosophy that i yeah okay oh so you like system building i love the system and then you know had a sort of crisis of faith in philosophy when i read the third critique i was like oh god it all fell apart <laughs> um so I studied abroad in England and put it down for a while and came okay. back. Okay. And then did you go straight to grad school? No, I took a year. I didn't decide that I wanted to go to grad school until um, like spring of my senior year. I was doing a lot of theater. I was mm. kind of busy, so mm. I didn't really think about it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, moved to, uh, to Chicago for a year while Andrew was uh, at the UFC and then started at DePaul the year after. Okay. Um, so what, what attracted you to DePaul at the time? Actually, my um, my undergraduate advisor went to DePaul. Okay. Uh, um, he's his name is Farid Guven. Hmm. Um, he studied at DePaul as did his his former wife Elaine Miller, okay. who studied with Tina. Oh right. Um, Who's now at Kingston, yeah. right? Oh no no. Yeah. Isn't she at Kingston? Okay. Tina's at mind. Kingston. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was like Elaine's still at Miami, I think. Oh, Miami, okay. Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then did you work with Tina? I did. I worked with um, Tina Chanter for yeah. yeah. I worked with uh, Tina Chanter and um, and Kevin Thompson. They were my co-directors. And what did you end up writing on? Um, I wrote uh, essentially on the um, the the book manuscript that I'm working on now, the concept of constitutive exclusion. So from Hegel through to 20th century interpretations of Hegel from Derrida and uh, Adorno. Okay. And uh, Butler. Can you say more about that concept? I'm not yeah, sure. sure. I, I'm familiar. Yeah. Um, so constitutive exclusion is a lot like what um, Judith Butler describes as the constitutive outside mm. um, or what a lot, of pe- a lot of other people refer to as the remainder or what Adorno refers to as non-identity. Um, so the, the concept is um, it's a, a body, whether it's a political body or a system of thought, that um, defines itself on the basis of an exclusion of something intolerable to it, but it nevertheless retains that excluded element within itself. 
um, under an epistemological block. So it uh, retains it in the form of repression or disavowal or something like that. Yeah. So I, I theorized that from the political theoretical side by looking at a couple of different um, cases of contestation of constitutive exclusion. Um, so I look at Antigone. I look at Jephthah's daughter as an example of, um, are you familiar with this figure, Jephthah? No, no. Jephthah's daughter. So it's um, from the book of Judges. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Jephthah's daughter strangely appears in each of the three major social contract theories. Hmm. Um, so uh, Daniel Allen wrote this great book called Talking to Strangers, and she writes about how it's kind of strange that there's this figure of sacrifice, the sacrifice of a nameless daughter that's at the root of all of these um, social contract theories, implying that equality needs some kind of sacrifice mm. prior to it to set it up, but it can't really recognize it as sacrifice. Hmm. So, so, so obviously you're pretty interested in political stuff, yeah. even, even at grad school. Um, yep. And uh, this, this notion of exclusion um, is, I think, probably pretty, pretty important to think through at the moment, mm -hmm. um, even in terms of like what's in the news, but also just, um, uh, you know, kind of what sets up America. Um, yeah. So are you, are you, can you say a little bit about why you're using philosophy to investigate that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of just what I have, right? <laughs> um, so I said that I, I start from a political theoretical side, but I also start from a philosophical side. So I see them as sort of like, um, I'm, I think I'm a, a Dornian at mm. my roots. So I see them as in kind of a dialectical tension with one, with one another. Because I, in, in reading um, Hegel, I saw the same sort of symptoms at work as we're at work in reading um, Antigone or reading um, another example I look at is uh, Rosa Parks and Claudette Colvin, mm -hmm. right? This idea that um, while Rosa Parks is in, in the national mythology, she's treated as this sort of less of a political subject than a political object, right? We have this narrative about her that she's, you know, she just chose as an individual to stay put mm -hmm. one day, um, completely occluding the history of political activism that she, that had led her to that moment. Um, and 15 or uh, nine months earlier, a 15 year old named Claudette Colvin was arrested for the same crime, though the movement wasn't um, organized around her as a figurehead because she wasn't a good like face for mm -hmm. the movement. She was too poor, too dark skinned. Um, she was pregnant by a, a, an older married man. Um, so this is another way of looking at how um, not only the um, Montgomery bus boycott had to use Rosa Parks for certain reasons and that um, the sort of strategic decision making that goes into that is sort of occluded in this sort of retrospective account of, of how it works. But also the choice not to uh, organize the boycott around Claudette Colvin is sort of occluded even more. Right. Um, at any rate, so... Uh, I investigated from that side, but there was also similar stuff going on in, for instance, like Derrida's reading of Hegel that I saw. I was like, these two things go together. So, okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that whole sort of, she didn't have the right face um, mm. for the movement. Um, 
you know, I guess we could get real Adornian, right? And, you know, um, start asking really depressing questions like, what does that say about political movements um, when they decide to make those kind of choices um, and they're thinking about, you know, excluding? Um, and I am thinking even in terms of some of the discourse that's going on around uh, uh, black men who've been shot lately yeah. and some people are like, well, they're not, they're not a great victim. Yeah, you know, like, yeah exactly. Um, so can you, have you thought a little bit about what that means or... Would you be willing to hear? Y yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think it was a, um, it was one of the writers for the New York Times, the one who is always talking about how we need to save women in Africa. You know that guy? Uh, you know, Christoph. There we go. Yeah, Christoph. I <laughs> avoid reading the New York Times. I avoid reading most popular op-ed stuff because it just yeah. infuriates me and yeah me, uh, i'm me already as mad well. enough yeah, so. yeah um at any rate i think it was it was him who said that uh he like discovered the case of of john crawford in mm. um in cleveland ohio who was shot and killed um holding a toy bb gun mm -hmm. in walmart um and ohio is an open carry state so mm -hmm. um yeah it, it was uh, i think nick christoph who said well why didn't you guys organize a movement around that guy that seems a much better representative than mike brown mm. yeah so um yeah indeed i think the 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 politics of respectability is totally at play in this um it seems to me that that um movements often organize around to to contest exclusion based on um one identity category by sort of pushing other identity categories to the background or stabilizing them or saying like you know we're we're normal mm -hmm. except for this one thing right mm -hmm. so thus um we don't get Claudette Colvin at the front of the movement we don't get you know Bayard Rustin can't address the the March on Washington because he's like a gay communist Quaker um <laughs> yeah, the best kind so, of Quakers, yeah yeah exactly um yeah so I think that that's that's definitely always in play I I'm not really sure I think that a lot of times that isn't the politics of respectability isn't like appreciated or the details of the um, I don't mean appreciated in like a normative sense like yeah let's do that but the the sort of careful political um, strategizing that go that went on um, around that in the Montgomery bus boycott for instance isn't really understood as like um, political like cunning political strategizing mm. um, but it would be great if uh, if it weren't necessary to do that anymore and I think that's the sort of part of the um, part of the great thing behind like Black Lives Matter it's mm -hmm. like you know it's not it's not just like proper respectable Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter all Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. um, that's why Mike Brown um. Not at the exclusion of, of John Crawford or anyone else for certain, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, you know, I listen to uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. That's partly why I started one. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a there's one that's actually out of Baltimore. Um, I mix what I like. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this. No, this no. Uh, but I'm it's, not a podcast. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, you know, it's a it's a, a Black Power podcast, yeah. and pretty explicitly. And um, they they joke that they're trying to bring back hating because they're like there's real positive things in hating. Um, and so they have like the annual hate awards. And uh, uh, and as a as a hater, um, I kind of appreciate this. But, you know, they were talking about Selma, um, yeah. which is a great film. And, and they were talking about how great it, 
uh, as a. It was an awful. I live in Los Angeles and I never go to the movies. Oh, you haven't seen Selma? Yet? I haven't seen Selma. I'm okay. Like a bad person. But it, it kind of does this thing where it occludes a lot of um, of elements and presents a very you know like it talks about MLK's um, uh, you know infidelities, yeah. um, but doesn't talk about uh, or present very well the people who had been on the ground kind of organizing like right. the, the Stokey Carmichaels yeah. um, and kind of pushes them into like one um, very dark skin character who's very aggressive uh, and, and kind of broed out um, yeah. and totally occluding this kind of non-respectable right. um, sort of activism that was really vital uh, as Absolutely. part of the Selma uh, yeah. march. And, um, so it's interesting that 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 runs even deep into movements that are committed to social justice mm-hmm. um, and so requires this kind of self-criticism um, that yeah. people do do but isn't necessarily in the op-eds or whatever mm-hmm. um, okay cool so uh, so you're at DePaul um, what around when were you finishing your dissertation then I defended in uh, January 2011 2011 okay yeah um, and moved to Los Angeles that July. Okay, because Andrew was already out there, or did you guys move for your job, or? No, it was for for his job. I, you know, adjuncted around uh, LMU for a couple years, and um, then got this postdoc at Fordham last year, and came back to LMU uh, as a professor of women's studies. Cool. Um, uh, do you mind if I ask about like being an academic couple? No, do, not it, at all. So does that put extra pressures in terms of the job market um, when you're both? in the game because uh, yeah, i mean you know he's not polite he's not way like, to put it yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well because he's not a, he's not even in you know like the hard sciences where i think it's a little bit easier for people he's also yeah. i mean not i don't know if you call it humanities but um you know, doing political theory it's not it's also difficult i think probably to yeah. find jobs like yeah you know. i mean there are there are very few jobs for political theorists i think there were maybe um five this oh, week, wow. this year yeah five total and many of them mm-hmm. were at like fancy programs, so it's like they're gonna hire, yeah. you know, late later career people. Um, yeah, I mean, he's also had training in um, like American politics. He got a good a good education at Chicago, as yeah. one tends to. So um, he can talk to sort of different different kinds of people. Um, nevertheless, yeah, the the academic couple thing is a yeah. That's a, we keep, we keep saying like, well, I, I got a, we got a unicorn basically. Like they don't exist. We found one. Um, yeah. So it took a, a, a couple of years of, of careful strategizing and going on the market hard every single year. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily he got some um, on-campus talks at a couple places like, like at Haverford mm-hmm. last year. So it was clear that he was a flight risk if, if, um, this situation wasn't resolved. Um, a couple of years, a couple of years ago, um, I coordinated with um, the chair of political science and the chair of women's studies to try and figure out something. We put together a proposal for a tenure line hire to uh, the dean of uh, the Bellarmine College of Liberal Arts at that time, and the dean said, "No, there's no money. We don't, and we don't do partner hires. We don't do that." Mm. Um, there's, there was no policy saying that we don't do that. Mm-hmm. Usually I, I take um, the lack of policy to indicate freedom mm-hmm. rather than constraint, but he didn't see it that way. Um, but um, after being at Fordham, we got a new dean, and she said yes. So Good. that's pretty much how that happened. Yeah, I came out and interviewed for that job. 
uh, at the end of January um, this past year and started in August. So I don't think um, people outside of academia, not that they should pity us for any, uh, you know, this isn't coal mining or anything like that, but... Um, yeah, it's not pouring slag, as my uh, former teacher, <laughs> our former teacher, teacher Rick Lee would say. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, still, I don't think people kind of outside of it, uh, at least in my family, they don't really understand sort of the stress that comes from not knowing where you're going to be and like worrying that you're going to be in like, you know... Um, some shitty college town in the middle of uh, Omaha, uh, and hey, um, don't knock Omaha. Oh, sorry, I great music. I was scene trying to think of like yeah, but like you're in the <laughs> small town. You're not in wherever the big town is. In Omaha. Yeah, um, and uh, especially when you're with someone, um, you know, you have to live apart. So you guys were a, a, a whole continent apart for a year. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm curious if you you think that this is a part of the academic uh, labor issue that people don't necessarily talk about or investigate very deeply. Um. Um, yeah, certainly. I. It was a. I think that it was a. Um, it was certainly a gamble, and it was sort of like, well, this postdoc is renewable for a year, and you know, we'll we'll see if this if this works. Like, either I get a, a job, and I can uh, you know put pressure on them to try and. Uh, make a partner hire um my way mm-hmm. or um you know we just exert enough pressure on um lmu to to do it his way mm. um yeah but I, I mean it's like it's it's just not the done thing people don't really think about it or they think that it's um, um that it they think that hiring a trailing partner means necessarily hiring someone of lower quality because of the devotion to the the myth of meritocracy mm-hmm. in academia it's, it's it's i think especially virulent in, in academia it's like look dude the conditions in the market are are so intense mm-hmm. that like you're not going to get somebody who's doing bad work it's just not going to happen right? yeah, <laughs> there are yeah like 600 I, I, 600 yeah. applications for an open position in philosophy yeah. at georgia tech it's like what? Wow. Yeah, you know, it's like the likelihood is pretty low that um, a trailing partner means you're going to be saddled with someone of lesser quality. And I think that it's like a it's a it's a um, gender equality issue, frankly, flatly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the case that women in academia tend to have um, partners who are academics at a higher rate than men mm. in academia. Men tend to have are more likely to have a partner who's not also an academic for women that's not the case um so if you're Mm. committed to hiring women then this is something that you're going to have to think about Mm. um i was in a a situation where i was um applying for a a job in feminist philosophy and got sort of further along in the in the um the process and said okay so i should probably let you know now that um, I have a partner, so that's going to figure into my sort of like thinking on this. And they were like, "Oh, yeah, I I don't really know if we have a policy. It seems like sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. I'll just ch- check with the dean." It's like that's not a policy. Though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like if you're gonna if you want to hire someone in feminist philosophy, you're probably looking to hire a woman. Mm-hmm. Maybe your process should be somewhat more feminist or or as feminist as the. Uh, the person that you're likely to be hiring. 
The last Just time think they about it. Yeah, you know? no, totally. <laughs> but sometimes <laughs> some I, I think people don't think about that um, until they, they're like, well, that's why we're hiring you. We need someone to think about this. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that's, uh, that's also kind of a labor issue because it's, um, yeah. I mean, those sorts of things aren't the... Um, the depth that I'm, I think feminist philosophers are trying to go into, like that's some just good ethics, good yeah. living your life sort of stuff. I'm, I'm, so I'm yeah. curious actually if... Um, so you're asking you, a different question about labor or... No, I, I'm curious if you have thoughts on this. I, I've noticed that a lot of times um, uh, as people try and uh, deal with some of the gender inequalities in, mm-hmm. in philosophy, but outside of philosophy as well, yeah. um, and they're trying to increase you know, female participation... Right. Um, or the participation of women um, in in these uh, conferences, um, they'll always kind of make like a random space for feminism, um, and uh, I'm wondering if you think that there's something. Uh, is there something sort of like perpetually um, infantilizing about kind of constantly asking feminist philosophers to start over from zero when they're talking outside of? Uh, a feminist group or like a, a working group uh, yeah, or whatever. I see. Yeah, it's the translation issue. So um, a couple of years ago at SPEP, it, last time it was in Philly, actually. Um, it was a I don't know, 25th anniversary or 50th anniversary. Who knows? It's been around a while. So um, there was this, this panel about um, the history of women in SPEP, and it was excellent. Nancy Holland was there, and um, Nancy Fraser, and um, um, Namita Goswami spoke. And... Uh, it was it was great. Um, Nancy Holland told this story about um, the older the old days at SPEP, and um, there was a professor who said uh, <laughs> she gave a paper on feminist philosophy, and the first question she received was somebody who asked, "Well, what does this have to do with Hegel?" Oh, she had referenced Hegel, I think, nowhere in her presentation, um, and she apparently walked to the edge of the dice and screamed, "What does this have to do with Hegel?" fucking nothing and then went and walked behind the table and proceeded to explain to him exactly everything it had to do with hegel hmm. um so <laughs> we all thought that was a pretty good representation so we made buttons that said fucking nothing i think i uh, i think yeah. i have one here because yeah yeah, here we go. yeah um um yeah so yeah it, it one of the great things about being in a women's studies department is that i haven't had to like continually do my like feminist philosophical analysis of the discipline of philosophy so Mm -hmm. i'm a little bit rusty on it but um um (laughs) yeah i think that it's um i think that philosophy still has a long way to go in thinking about um the gender of philosophy itself the gender of thought the gender of thinking um there are all these presumptions that that are at work in the way that the discipline is organized in a political economic level right um that um, tend to uh, marginalize and exclude women still. And so then it puts like women in the, the discipline in this really shitty position where it's like either they, you are a feminist philosopher, so there are all these assumptions about you, or if you're a woman, you're presumed to be a feminist philosopher. And a lot of women aren't. Mm-hmm. And so they get mad when they get like, oh, well, you can teach this class, right? And right. Like, dude, I teach liveness. What's up? Yeah. Um, well, because that's, that's partly what and I mean. And sometimes they is... get mad at us, right? They get mad at feminists for, like, you know, being pushy and as if we're the source of this presumption. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, you know, that's the, that's a common condition. Um, yeah. You're not... The um, situation of being uh, marginalized or excluded means that you have to 
act sometimes or you think you have to act as if you're the exception right like it's kind of a tomboy logic mm. yeah like i'm not like the other girls i have a brain and i use it right it's like well okay that's yeah that's pretty depressing <laughs> uh in some ways yeah but um yeah. yeah i mean that notion that um like a someone who is an expert in Leibniz or mm-hmm. you know does philosophy of mind or whatever but um uh, is a woman then has to teach feminist philosophy yeah. that, that's got to be kind of infuriating and yet at the same time there needs to be some kind of ring fencing for protecting those positions for women mm-hmm. um, right like because women should be teaching this f- feminist philosophy rather than like i i have to do it in my intro class i teach uh, a lot on gender and race yeah. um and i always um i always try to bring attention to the fact that it's kind of uh, weird and, and that you know the students should um, try and push back against this kind of dynamic where I'm trying to transfer knowledge to them because half of them are women. And mm. Like you know, so yeah. um, I shouldn't be speaking for your experience and all sorts of other sort of issues that come up. But I've also read a lot of books, and so maybe I have some yeah. tools that you might want to use. Right. Um, well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that I've always thought that it's not gender is not an exclusive concern, right? It's not as if like um, only. I mean, like this is a very somewhat old idea like a somewhat old idea audrey lord wrote this essay a long while ago like 1980 and Mm -hmm. she was like yeah it's funny women think that they can't teach literature by people of color and i'm like dude you're teaching shakespeare what is up with that um i think you can probably work some octavia butler in there i mean i think that teaching philosophy it was always apparent to me um, the weird gender stuff that was going on in like the history of philosophy courses that I was mm-hmm. in like oh hey what's this stuff that Aristotle is talking about or what's this stuff that like you know Kant is saying about how women can't really be friends what's that about <laughs> um, and it was like you know useful when I had professors um, male professors who would speak to it mm-hmm. like I noticed it and sometimes when they didn't speak to it I was like oh maybe that's not there maybe it's not important maybe it's not going on um but like that's something that that everybody can do mm-hmm. right it's not like i was at a panel once talking about um, women in the discipline and an ancient philosopher was like well what would you have me do I, I teach aristotle do you want me to take you know three weeks at the end of the semester to teach 20th century stuff and i was like there's a lot happening in aristotle you can probably figure it out yeah <laughs> your students are already there right so just acknowledge that that's there and and uh, think about it and, and work through it with them um yeah i think that's really right uh and i mean i think for uh you know me as a man and a white guy um i i have to go into the class assuming i'm gonna fuck something up yeah when i'm yeah. teaching it and kind of tell them that and like yeah. um try to break again break down this kind of artificial power dynamic because at the end of the day like what am yeah. i gonna what, what what power do i have i give you a grade um and uh you know college professors aren't exactly respected in culture any, nowadays it's not like when i go to the airport they're like oh let's let's bump up dr smith especially if they figure out that i'm not like a, a useful doctor yeah um not the kind that can help anybody no i, 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 I can like think I about their being you, i can or, give you homework i yeah. can't give you pills or anything yeah <laughs> but uh, um, but this notion that you know uh, people have to be willing to fail yeah. um, because that failure can open up spaces for students who are coming from these marginalized positions um, to to do work that goes far beyond what we're doing in the classroom. I think is is really important to, yeah. for people to hear. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like I don't mean to say that 
be, that um, it, gender is not like a not being a ghettoized concern that that means that then like you everybody of course has full mastery over it right? mm-hmm. um, so I'm like I'm in a position where I'm teaching like an intro course in uh, women of color in the US right so this is something that my my chair was like well you know we'll see how it goes and you might get some pushback and I was like honestly I hope I do right yeah. like I've read a lot of books but um, it's not my experience that I'm speaking to in the classroom it's the experience of my students so yeah um, yeah, I think that it's important pedagogically to, to make as much room as you can for, for people to feel like comfortable, um, not just talking with each other, but raising critical questions of, of the teacher. I think that's essential. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm doing a similar thing next semester. I'm teaching black religion in America. And I've got some, I was asking for resources online and mm-hmm. um, got some pushback. But I think what people don't understand a lot of times when they're thinking about um, teaching courses like this is that there are over, uh, there's a lot of debate over this. There's not a right answer that yeah. you just go to the world of forms and like pluck it out and yeah, then you're yeah. like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like you have to navigate the community and um, yeah, you have to be willing to fail and yeah. do it publicly. Uh, my friend Amoria Shea, who's at Vanderbilt, you know, she was talking about this with me online, um, saying that teachers publicly fail and like that's what makes the job really hard. But you have to be willing to stand up there and. Yeah. Like basically fall on your face, uh, yeah. which can be really hard. Um, yeah, I think actually my background in theater prepared me well for all of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always thought that that prepared me excellently for uh, performing in the classroom and being willing to be like, oh, whoops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that performance didn't go so well. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so you're, you're in a women's studies program now. Yeah. Um, does that feel freeing? In a lot of ways, you kind of said a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. I was really mad about the prospect of ending up in women's studies, like maybe a year and a half ago. Um, it felt like it felt like a failure, right? Like it felt like hmm. I I felt like um, you know, fuck you guys, you're not gonna push me out of here. I belong here too. Um, and then eventually, it was just like whatever. I can do I can do the work that I want to do, um, and nobody is going. I don't have to continue to um, justify the work that I do to anybody mm-hmm. and um, and also the teaching experience is totally different like it's it's really fun to teach stuff that I was just like reading for my own benefit and for my own research and now I can do that in the classroom mm-hmm. um, I wasn't really teaching uh, I don't I don't work on Descartes and Augustine I've taught a lot of that yeah. <laughs> um, and now I can teach like Audre Lorde and you know trans feminism and mm-hmm. and queer theory and and stuff like that which is totally fun i'm still getting used to it i'm still like learning how to how to teach it mm-hmm. um yeah i do sometimes miss teaching like straightforward philosophical stuff but mm. i'm sure there'll be time later yeah i totally i do experience it as freeing um it, it, it's so it's i had not a, as if i've left entirely right like i, yeah. I still go to conferences and, yeah. and hang out with philosophers but the I don't this this um pressure to constantly translate yourself is gone yeah and that's a frees up a lot of mental space it's kind of a similar experience uh, because you know i i'm in a religion department but i'm not like an anthropologist and i can read this stuff and they can kind of teach it um i don't know i I even tell my students i'm like i don't i don't know anything about like religion (laughs) i mean you know like you can go on wikipedia and find out how many christians or buddhists and they're all in like yik yak being like why does this yeah. professor teaching yeah, this no. class. What's yeah, I'll, I'll show you our yik likely. <laughs> yeah. um, 
but uh, it's kind of the same thing where, you know, there's like, it's really freeing. But I'm wondering if you had a similar experience. I, I taught philosophy at DePaul yeah. uh, when I was an adjunct. Yeah. Um, and I feel kind of guilty. I had a pretty easy adjunct experience. Um, uh, but Did you come back and teach at DePaul? Yeah, we got kicked finishing? out of the UK. Uh, so my partner, her visa was denied. And then we yeah, we had to we went to like a human rights court. It was like a whole mess and then Yeah, I think I remember um, hearing inklings about this at the I'm sure I in New York at Derrida yeah. Day. Yeah. Yeah, when I get drunk, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um we'll anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, um yeah, and I I only had contacts at DePaul uh and Yeah. Um, you know, so through Liam Heenahan, who's actually in environmental studies and yeah. science. Um but, but he's a PhD student at DePaul yeah, as well. Yeah, in the yeah, philosophy, philosophy program. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it'll take him about 20 years, I think is what he's saying, because <laughs> um, he's now head of department. Yeah. Um, which... But watching him and Will McNeil compete for poetry recitation is a, is a thing of beauty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, he now plays the, uh, uh, the, pi- the whistle, um, the Irish pan whistle, yeah, yeah. Um, which is pretty great. Um, he goes to graveyards and plays it to the dead, I guess. It's very Irish. Uh, I love him. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's a really, he was, you know, he started off as a mentor and turned into just a really great friend. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, but teaching philosophy, you know, it was like fun because it's yeah. just an easy narrative, like yeah. you're, um, especially in an intro class. Whereas teaching religion, I, I, I find it really difficult to get them to engage. Um, yeah. Do you find something similar in women's studies? Because it's not the same sort of like majoritarian thought in western civilization i don't know why it's so much easier but yeah um. no it's it's really different because it's um there's a self-selection thing at work i think because you know nobody has to take a women's studies course at all the universities that i've taught have been they've all been catholic universities and so Mm -hmm. everybody has to take philosophy Mm um so it's a it's i'm still kind of figuring it out but it starts from a different position right so it's like all of my classes are uh, majority women and majority women of color, all mm. of them, and it's like what? It's like yeah. a different world. It's 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 great. Um, not that I, <laughs> not that I didn't enjoy the um, the story, the narrative that I was telling in in um, philosophy classes, but I have to do less sort of work to to get them to care. Mm. Um, uh, I was really good at that work, uh, getting getting kids sort of invested in. Uh, in the strange questions going on in in these books um like why did what's what's plato going on here about homosexuality it's like this is a huge (laughs) long defense of being gay how weird is that you didn't expect that from you know your intro to philosophy class (laughs) um yeah i teach uh saint Teresa for a similar reason like yeah she's she's having sex with god yeah what's what's that about and then they're like like, is this an orgasm? And I'm like, yeah, St. Teresa orgasm. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's all about making the familiar strange yeah. and the strange familiar. Yeah. So teaching women's studies classes is is a little bit different. I, I'm still, I feel like, I feel like what I'm doing in the classroom is super radical. I know that it's not, but mm. compared to what I've been doing in the past, it feels super radical. So it's difficult to, for me to gauge um, if the students feel that way or th- I think they're just, you know, they're just there. They just showed up. And so mm-hmm. they're like, OK, whatever you say. Well, um, what, what are you doing that's radical? To, just like you? teaching, you know, oh, yeah, let, we're going uh, we're going to talk about Jasper Poir today and mm-hmm. we're going to talk about homo nationalism or, you know, I think that my students find um, second and third wave, second wave feminist critiques of um, capitalism most challenging. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm getting a sense now where the uh, 
It's like a lot of them are on board with a lot of stuff, and a lot of them know the lingo. Like mm-hmm. they all, they're like, yeah, intersectionality. They don't, they can't really define it for me or tell me what it is. Um, so they know a lot of stuff, but I'm starting to get a sense of where they, where I can push them. Yeah, and it's definitely around anti-capitalism. So, yeah. so feminism is socialism. What now? And they're like, well, that doesn't make. What? What about Sheryl Sandberg and? I'm like, yeah. I wonder if that's like a California problem, especially because uh, it's sort of like the neoliberal <laughs> mecca. Yeah, um, yeah. And the, I mean, the university, the one way in which uh, Loyola Marymount is, is quite different from DePaul is uh, the, uh, the the money thing. Yeah, my students drive. Oh, they have more money than DePaul students, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I was like, oh, that's what a, a Lotus looks like that's what a Maserati I don't even know what a Lotus is it's a kind of car (laughs) that you know a sophomore in college drives yeah at at DePaul it was like you know kids of immigrants and Mm -hmm. kids going to school to get an accounting degree so that they Mm -hmm. didn't have to work a service job anymore right I mean this is why I have like this weird loyalty I really miss those yeah I really miss those kids they were so much fun to teach well I was that so hungry yeah yeah yeah, totally I went there because they gave me a huge grant for kids who didn't have money. Yeah. Um, and I was a first generation college kid and like yeah. the professors didn't treat me like a dum dum. Like I'm, I actually remember uh you know Pascal Ambro. Yeah, yeah. Um the Derrida translator. Um you know sh- she was my French teacher. Yeah. And I was like I don't know what an infinitive is. And and I was like this is a really dumb question but what is an infinitive verb because everyone else seems to know. Mm-hmm. And and she's like oh no it's not dumb. Like she was really nice, which is very un French in so many ways, but uh, that culture um, was was <laughs> great for that stuff. Uh, yeah, um, but there was something freeing in that in that teaching experience, right? Yeah. It's sort of like you you you're starting from. I mean, like I that's where I started teaching. I I wouldn't I didn't know anything better really, but um, yeah, you're starting from you're starting from a clean slate basically. It's mm-hmm. like they're not coming in with kind of these like uh, prejudices about what they should be getting. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can just kind of go. Yeah. yeah. And I often found like my, my first generation students were like my best students. They were mm. like, Thanks. they were just, so, no. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, they were just so hungry. They were like, you know, they knew what, a, they knew what it meant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember, so uh, listeners might not realize this, but we were at DePaul around the same time. You're a grad student and I was uh, an undergrad yeah. and I, mean, I used to go to the bourgeoisie pig um, and you guys would always be in there. Yeah. Um, and I would always be like really intimidated by the philosophy grad students, you know, um, but I was going there to like read, you know, my philosophy books. And uh, yeah, so are um, we. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you probably don't remember this. Actually, the first time we met was at the Bourgeoisie Pig because I had a copy of Rogues that Michael Noss had given me. And you're yeah. like, oh, is that the new book? And, uh, and that's when we first met. Yeah. Um, but. It was I, when it was printed, or did he give you the the manuscript? Yeah, version? right when he was print when yeah. it was printed by yeah. Stanford, I think. Yeah, um, but because uh, he taught the he taught out of the the manuscript version, like the semester before it came for out for your grad students. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I'm kind of you know we're talking about Catholic schools. Uh, we both teach at Catholic schools, and we're both I'm guessing not Catholic. Um, I'm I, I'm former uh, or I don't know if you can ever yeah. get out. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, I went, but they never baptized me. So um, oh, you weren't. Yeah, yeah. I was, was never like, confirmed. So uh, okay. it's like half it's in, half tricky. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, but it's it's a weird experience, I think, when you are a 
politically, um, you know, left person to yeah. teach at a private religious school. Um, and yet at the same time, it's these weird, it's this weird thing with Catholic schools where they require humanities courses um, where a lot of these ideas actually are able to be taught. Um, yeah. Have you thought about that and like your kind of weird positionality in there? I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like on the one hand, I'm teaching at an institution where it's like, you know, I'm working a four or four for a pittance. I mean, it was in the mm, past mm. Um, when I was on a visiting assistant professorship. Mm-hmm. I'm working a four or four for a pittance. And, you know, half of the, the courses in the College of Liberal Arts are taught by, you know, part time or contract workers. Um, and yet my students are driving like Maseratis and Lotuses. It was very strange. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, that on the one hand. And on the other hand, um, I feel like there's a great potential in, in working for um, private Catholic universities, especially because um, they have often a social justice mission. Yeah. Um, and they usually take it pretty seriously, right? So there's a lot of there's a lot of room to work rhetorically to push back against the corporatization of higher education, on the basis of principles that they themselves claim to hold dear, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think that that's that's um, a source of real potential. Now, I mean, on the whole, I think that faculty anywhere don't really have that much power in terms of yeah. how a university is run and the, the decisions that are made. So um, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of politics, honestly, to get people to together to just like realize what's going on yeah. and uh, try and push back against some things. But yeah, um, I'm glad for that. I mean, I've never worked for a state institution. There are a bunch of different kinds of pressures and concerns at state institutions. Um, I think that often faculty at state institutions are more politicized because they work for a state institution so their job is sort of more tied to those sorts of issues whereas mm-hmm. it seems like faculty at private institutions are more likely to just be like you know what i'm doing is unconnected to education and you yeah. know k through 12 education or yeah. whatever um, on the other hand i think that there is that sort of wiggle room yeah i mean i find it you know uh, pretty you know, it's kind of weird. Like, I basically get a paycheck from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, at some. Is that true? I mean, is that who's paying us? No, not really. Oh, but like, like we we <laughs> exist in the same way that like as Americans, you know, we benefit from yeah. slavery and yeah, this history. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, these these institutions wouldn't exist without sure. the weird entanglement of Catholicism and colonialism. And yeah. You know, especially at a Jesuit institution in um, Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, but uh, it is, it's this weird experience because, um, you know, in Philly, we're one of the few schools that try and get kids who shouldn't necessarily go to college by a lot of standards. And we try to bring yeah. them in and, and, you know, we don't have a lot of money and there's problems, but mm-hmm. uh, I want to affirm that at the same time that I want to push back against a lot of other stuff about Philly Catholicism that's really fucked up and yeah. um, wrong. Right. Um and so, yeah, just, I, I always ask people who share this kind of weird yeah. position. No, it's the same at our institution. I mean, like, the, 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 the money situation is different, right? Like, it's for some reason doesn't – it's an institution that doesn't have a lot of money in terms of an endowment, and so mm-hmm. tuition is extremely high. And so we tend to get kids – I mean, we, we're, we're pretty good about, about offering fellowships, but there's, like, a culture on campus of, of wealth mm-hmm. um, that's pretty strange. And, you know, there's been um, – 
an attempt at organizing the um, contract workers at LMU in the last couple of years um, in conjunction with SEIU. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we tried to use a sort of like the uh, social justice mission of the university to try to get some of that work yeah. done. And, you know, we got some concessions, which are good concessions, but still no union. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a, a, a large battle over um, abortion coverage in um, health care plans. So, yeah, you know, it's always... And that was eventually adjudicated by the state, right? That was, yeah, that was adjudicated by state intervention, um, though the faculty were, uh, a lot of the faculty were pretty upset at the the process by which the um, administration chose to alter our health care coverage. Health care coverage is part of the contract that's supposed to be handled by the faculty senate. Instead, the board of trustees just sort of said, yeah, we're doing this now. And the order came down, so... This board of trustees thing, yeah, I mean... Yeah, right. Uh, so you're coming here. We just got an announcement for a new president, and it's a good result, um, we're hoping. But yeah. it's crazy, because you just have to hope that your masters in, exactly. in the board will make a good decision. And it's, yeah. uh, um, I don't know how that happened, and I don't know why my colleagues don't get more uh, politicized by yeah. the process. But, um, yeah, they're, like, totally unaccountable. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's not until, like, the, someone on the board gets a wild hair up their ass about how, like, we're going to take the entire Jesuit core online and, you know. Wait, what? For one real? of them One of them thought that this was a, a great idea, and he was like, yeah, we should do this. I really want to push for this. And uh, yeah. faculty was like, uh, no, do you even understand what kind of education you're selling here, yeah. quote unquote? Yeah. yeah. You're going to kill the brand, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like a curmudgeon about all this online yeah. stuff, but I'm just like, it's just bad. It's not. Yeah, no, it's like it's like they, they read all of the like hype mm-hmm. and they missed the end of May when right. it all went in the toilet. I right. was like, you guys need, you keep reading to the end of the, the book because it gets bad. I feel like all these people in power, like they read people like Foucault on, you know, disciplinary societies or like. <laughs> Like, they uh, do. They and, read, and then they're like, "Yeah, this, this is, is a great this plan. is a great manual." <laughs> like, and and I'm like, "No, that's not. It's a bad thing." Yeah. Uh, but, um, <laughs> yeah. So switching gears a little bit, um, um, I, I wanted to hear a little bit about your new project. Uh, I think you said it's reading a city. Is that yeah, right? yeah, um, yeah. So this is this is I think something that I don't know if I could have done if I were in a in a philosophy department. Um, in the women's studies department. It's a very small department, so it's like two other people and myself. Mm-hmm. So I had to put together my own tenure committee. Um, so I took somebody from um, AFAM who works on uh, history and someone from philosophy, Brad Stone, who's mm-hmm. a, uh, the chair of African-American studies right now, and uh, a woman from urban studies. And she was like, what the hell am I doing on this committee? <laughs> I was like, well, the next project is about cities, so I'm I'm hoping that I can you know learn from you some stuff about um, urban theory and, and cities in general. Yeah, so the next the next project is gonna it's a uh, tentatively titled "How to Read a City," so it's going to be an application or maybe um, paying off a promise, and mm. that's in the uh, the current project of a better account um, in a um, historical materialism sense um, than I was offering or am offering in in the current the current project so the the theory behind it is like so iris marion young in uh, justice and the politics of difference has a chapter called the the city as ideal in which she sort of plays out how um, cities are ideal 
places for democracy to mm. to take place. Um, and I I think that in some senses she's she's totally right, um, but she doesn't really have an account of the city as real or the actuality mm. of the city. And my sense is that um, cities have been kind of rearranged through neoliberal policies and the and, and gentrification in the last you know 20 25 years to give an an account of the city that offers a sort of um, appearance of difference mm-hmm. um, without the real rich differences that democracy requires right so it's a sort of political epistemological account mm. of how um, the city presents itself as a text yeah. for a certain kind of reader and all of the all of the elements that make the city work um, but are not really valued by the city are sort of pushed to the periphery. And what are those those things that you... Well, I mean, it, I'm, I'm referring primarily to like resegregation mm-hmm. and the perishification of American cities, right? The idea that um, the sort of working class and uh, especially the black working class and the black poor are moved out of um, public housing, which doesn't exist anymore, yeah. and pushed out to the suburbs. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like if they have a job in the city it's very expensive because they have to take public transportation for several hours. Mm -hmm. Or if you're in Detroit, I guess you walk 20 miles a day. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it's kind of a European model in some ways, uh, but without (laughs) any of the even remnants of a social safety net. And yeah. So it's connected to like the end of public housing. It's connected to, um, how cities are organized through, um, bonds now instead of taxes it's about tax increment financing in the city of chicago and it's about mm-hmm. like global um the the brand new um global housing market that we have what, now, what do you mean by that i mean that um housing markets were always sort of local markets right people bought places that they lived in mm-hmm. now um, large cities have turned into um have turned housing markets into financial markets, right? So they park their money in, um, you know, a high-rise apartment, luxury yeah. apartment building on Central Park rather than putting in, putting it in a financial portfolio that might be more risky. Right. So housing is seen as a, a safe bet for finance. Which, which people have to live there and then they yeah. have to pay you rent. Um, yeah, and that's the, that's the, the sort of continuation of hmm. the the housing bubble especially in in cities yeah. in large cities um that sounds that sounds really interesting i mean i i uh i read through uh an article that you wrote on antigone um kind of derrida's reading and, and i was kind of struck yeah. by how some of your work seems to be about um um an engagement with like the discourse of intersectionality i don't think yeah. you use that term in the the essay but it it struck me that a lot of what you're doing is kind of deepening the tool of intersectionality. Would you say yeah. that's right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, in the, the talk that I'm giving um, tomorrow at Rowan, I do mention that, right? So like this is sort of, um, I see content, uh, continental philosophy, no. I see <laughs> <laughs> constitutive exclusion as a sort of um, modification of intersectionality. Mm. Um, for me, it it's modified, um, especially in the new project on cities in terms of um, referring to history, right, to, to the history of these exclusions, how they work multiply, how they format um, identities in, in multiple ways and, and space in multiple ways. Hmm. Yeah. 
So, um, you know, this has been a, I, I've been struggling a little bit with intersectionality, um, just in terms of, uh, kind of treating it like a diagnostic tool more than a cure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious how you want to deploy it. Like, do you see it as having uh, use beyond sort of um, uh, reading things, kind of getting a sense of things, or is that is that its primary uh, use? Oh, I see what you mean. Um, yeah, I think of it primarily as a method, right? So mm-hmm. like Kim Crenshaw on Mapping the Margins defines it as a, a method rather than a theory. Mm. Um, so I think that it's intended to be used as, as more of a diagnostic tool. And always it, it's a tool that's formed in relation to the things that need analysis, right? The, thing, the, the questions that arise. Um, so I think that it's totally fair to alter it in relation to, um, you know, the, the stuff that you're looking at, the yeah. things you're trying to understand. Um, yeah, so I don't think that there's like a positive, positivist program that comes out of that or... Well, because it one. would be kind <laughs> of implicated one. by the by intersectionality as well, right? Um, it, even if the positive program emerges, it has to be sort of mapped in this in a similar way. Uh, yeah, insofar as you can do that, right? So part of, the, I think, the lesson of intersectionality, or at least the way that I understand it and, and use it to the extent that I do, is is um, epistemic humility, right? It's mm-hmm. like, you're, you're going to fail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going to fail in certain respects. Um, that's why it's not a totalizing theory, as, as, um, as Crenshaw says. It's a, it's a method, right? So, okay. um, yeah, I don't really know what that, what that gets you. At least it gets you, like, trying to um, avoid some of the dangers of, of maybe past movements or past yeah, um, yeah. theories. I think it could, yeah, I mean, I wasn't trying to, um, to criticize it. It's, it's more of yeah. a, a kind of, um, I get a similar feeling as when I read Adorno's negative dialectics is yeah. when I engage with it. Um, and that's not to collapse, you know, not trying to like hold up the German as like, oh, like the real philosopher or something like that. But sure, just, yeah. j- just saying that there's a, a similarity in how um, I think they both kind of do this diagnosis. Yeah. Um, and, I'm I'm wondering if you you know because a lot of times people criticize it as that's creating cool. A we kind should of write an Adorno Crenshaw. Yeah, paper. so <laughs> I look for it. crazy. Um, <laughs> but I'm wondering, you know, the a lot of times the criticism of those sorts of diagnostic tools is they they make it feel like you're you're stuck and you're trapped. Yeah. Have you thought through that being trapped? Because um, you know you live in the same world I do. Yeah. You know, no, I don't. I mean, I don't feel trapped. Like. Okay. Yeah. I I, I feel like uh, the. I'm very much on board with like um like Linda Alkoff's claim at the beginning of um on judging epistemic credibility that when we're required to offer something positive that's often an indication of that we're being our our criticality is being shut down right it's like okay but that's all well and good but what are we going to do that's an effort to to shut down critical insight mm-hmm. i think so I'm not really worried by it. But then again, like I read a lot of Adorno and I'm like, yeah, right on, man. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't offer you like, here's what let's do. He's no. just going to say like, I mean, we have to do something. Absolutely. We have to do something. Yeah. We'll probably fuck it up, but we have to do something. That's my conversation with Sina. I want to thank you all for listening And I want to remind you, as I normally do, that whatever the world throws at you this week, your name is your name. And as usual, sadly, 
We have to remember that their names were DePayne Middleton Doctor, Cynthia Hurd, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lance, Clementa Pickney, Tywanza Sanders, Daniel Simmons, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, and Myra Thompson. That's nine more names of black Americans lost to white supremacist violence. I don't know what to do with that. Maybe uh, seen as right that you gotta do something. And so I hope this week you, you remember them. Uh, you remember that they were more than just their death. And you recognize the grace involved if you are a white person that black people in this country extend to you friendship of any kind. So until next time, your name is your name.